before we get started in today's podcast, I just want to give you a little warning that we had a little bit of technical issues. Another thing I wanted to make sure that everyone was aware is Rebecca refers to yesterday quite a bit, and we actually recorded this podcast on January 7th. So please do keep that in mind as you're listening and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. You know, Bookstagram has been a great way for Shauna and myself to discover Canadian authors with whom we aren't familiar. And that is how we came across today's guest. We'd like to introduce Marcello DeCintio, who is the author of Pay No Heed to the Rockets, Life in Contemporary Palestine. Welcome, Marcello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to say, when I came across your book, uh, I realized, and I felt really bad about this, but that I don't think I'd ever read a fiction or nonfiction book about Palestine. Obviously, most of us have read lots of articles in the newspapers, but nothing, um, no books specifically. And, you know, it was kind of a really a rude awakening for me. So I'm so thankful I found your book, which I loved, by the way. Thank you. And I kind of want to start with, if you could just give us a kind of a brief description of the book. Sure. So, um, you know, I've been traveling to uh, Pal- Israel and Palestine uh, many times ever since, uh, you know, since the end of 1999. And I've been wanting to write about the Palestinians for, for a long time, but I was always trying to find a way, a way to write about Palestine and the Palestinians that didn't uh, begin with politics and conflict. And, uh, and I, I couldn't figure that out. Like I'd written some es- es- essays and magazine and newspaper pieces for, but I really wanted to, to, to vote uh, a book length, you know, my book length attention on, on, on the Palestinians. And it wasn't until I had um, worked as a writer in residence at the Palestine Writers Workshop uh, for a month in, in the spring one year that I thought, I thought this would be a, maybe an interesting way into uh, writing about Palestinians is to, is to write about the writers themselves. You know, I, for, the, for the longest time, I think you know, people on this side of the Atlantic, we only ever see, uh, uh, there's only ever two, two kinds of Palestinian, you know, we're introduced to in, in media, right? There's the, there's the furious uh, Palestinian young man, you know, hurling a stone at, at, a, at a row of soldiers, or the, the, the wailing, weeping Palestinian woman, you know, you know crying in front of the, you know, the remains of her destroyed home, right? We, the Palestinian, mm-hmm always either uh, the victim or the, the a militant, right? That's, that's kind of the only the, the two stories. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to write stories I hadn't heard of or the stories that we hadn't seen here, I thought, well, then why not go to the storytellers themselves? So, so for this book, I, I did just that. I went to Palestine and I interviewed poets and uh, novelists and, and, and other kinds of writers and, and librarians and mm-hmm. book owners. Um, so to, to get a sense of Palestine kind of through the lens of their literary culture. Um, and so that it, it enabled me to, to you, know, in, you know, politics was always there. The conflict was always there in these conversations, but at least it did start with those conversations, right? So instead of starting a conversation with, you know, tell me about, you know, the, a terrible time at, at, the, at the military checkpoint, I could say instead, tell me about the first poem you wrote. Mm-hmm. Or instead of talking, talk to me about your the grandfather's olive fields that were lost in 1948. I could say, tell me about your grandfather's library and the first books you read. 
And so I could, you know, there, there was this, there was this more kind of in intro that was that was kind of more beautiful, right? It was about art and literature and, and, and reading than just about war and conflict and, and, and deprivation. Yeah, and, and that's a really beautiful way to, I think, to have approached it because what it did for me is it made me see that beautiful side to the stories rather than just kind of, like I said, what I'd been reading in the newspaper for so many years of my life. So now I'm really curious. I'm really curious, though, what prompted your first trip to Palestine, which I believe was in 1999? Like, why in the world did you go to Palestine in the beginning? You know, I wish I had a less cheesy answer for that question, <laughs> but I don't. And the reason why I went to I went to I went to Jerusalem in December 1999, because I wanted to be somewhere interesting when the clock turned on the millennium. And okay. if you remember, if you remember to that, it's almost quaint the things we were afraid of back then. Yeah. You know? uh, and and uh, there was there was some concern from from uh, um, authorities in, in Israel that that a bunch of kind of Christian extremists were going <laughs> to descend on the holy city because they felt this was the end of the world was was coming and Jesus mm -hmm. was show up. This was it. And and so I wanted to kind of be there amongst the craziness. Uh, uh, and so that's why, that's the reason why I went, um, yeah, which is, which is not the most, you know, intellectual reason to go anywhere. Um, oh. while I was there, so I ended up spending, I guess it was close to three months between, uh, uh Israel, Palestine and, and a visit to Egypt as well. And that was kind of my first introduction to, well, to, to, to the conflict, to Palestinians. I, you know, I spent some time in the West Bank. I, 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 I that was kind of a, an, it was an eye-opening experience for me being there and, and. You know, for a, as as a travel writer, you know, there's there was it was so much. I found it was it was a really rich place to visit because if you're going to pay attention to what's going on at all, uh, spending time in Jerusalem, it's going to pull you onto one side of that divide or the other. Mm -hmm. If you, if you have any, if I mean, if you want to sit in your hostel and get drunk with foreigners from around the world, which many people did, fine. But if you want to, if you really want to, if you really want to open your eyes, you really pulled in one direction or the other. And I really felt that, you know, it was, that's kind of when I kind of woke up to what was going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And I've been interested, if not mildly obsessed with that ever since. Yeah, I, well, first of all, I want to say that I think it's actually a great reason to have gone there in 1999, because I remember Y2K was a big thing and we yeah. all thought the world was going to end. So I think it's actually a really brilliant uh, story behind why you did so there was a um, lot of there was a lot of upset mostly americans yeah uh-huh stood <laughs> up by the messiah <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah it was disappointing for a lot of people yeah i remember it it came and went and there was no i mean it was there was no flash it was just amazing at the time i yeah, remember yeah. that clearly so now can you talk about the origin of the title of the book because i know there's the story about the yeah. girl in the green dress but i loved in fact, it's funny because when I read the poem that prompted the title, I, right. it's just, it's just beautiful, but it's, yeah, it's anyway, I'll let you talk about it. I'm not going to try and wreck it here. So I'll let you talk. Yeah, about it, 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 is, it is a gorgeous piece of writing, not by me. Um, so, so kind of the, the, the most famous of all Palestinian authors is a poet named Mahmoud Darwish, who's almost a saint for most Palestinians. And, um, uh, he, in addition to his many, many books of poetry, he wrote a few books of nonfiction, um, which as a nonfiction writer myself, I kind of prefer. And, and that's like heresy to, to, to say that. Um, 
but he did a memoir of his time in Beirut in, in during the Civil War in 1982, where he was living at the time. And in, in, in one section of this memoir, he goes on a like, pages-long meditation on waking up in the morning in a war zone and brewing coffee. And, 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 and Darwish was, was a renowned coffee fanatic and, and, and quite a snob about, about coffee, which also endeared me to him. Um, <laughs> Or cheered him to me, and uh, and so there's this long uh, section on him brewing coffee in the morning as a war is going on outside, and he talks about putting in the sugar and and stirring it stirring it clockwise and then counterclockwise and dipping the spoon in and out in this very very elaborate system. But at one point he says, you know, uh, you know, turn off the heat, pay no heed to the rockets, and then you know, and then kind of take you know then take your coffee, and it was this. It was this incredible, uh, uh, it was so beautiful, the idea that it kind of meant two things to me, and, and both things are kind of related to what I wanted to do in the book. Like, here's this, here's this man surrounded by war, and, uh, um, and yet he finds a moment in the morning to do something beautiful, which is just make the perfect cup of coffee, which only he could make, right? You know, he had to pay no heed to the rockets in order to do this, and that's kind of what... I wanted to do in this book is, you know, in, in spite of all we all we think we know about Palestine, there is great beauty there in the midst of all this turmoil. But at the same time, I think, I mean, how I read that that piece of his memoir was he was also being ironic. Of course, you cannot pay no heed to the rockets. If there's rockets going on outside, you're not going to ignore them. In fact, one of Darwish's contemporaries at the time, another poet, he had his his apartment was actually hit by a rocket. And it destroyed, like it destroyed all the copies of his first book of poetry. So you know, oh. it's an intellectual, you know, a conversation. You you, ha- you could not ignore the war. Um, and so that is another part of what I wanted to talk about too. Like even though these writers of Palestine and the Palestinians in general kind of strive for beauty the way we all do, you can't separate that life from the conflict itself. Um. And so for, for me, the, the, just those few lines from Darwish really encapsulated uh, uh, what I wanted to do. And they're just, it's just a beautiful line of verse. Like it is. Yeah, and I think that's just it. You nailed exactly what you were trying to accomplish with the book, in my, in my opinion, because I loved it so much. But you did. It, that poem really does exactly what you just said it does, which is on one side, it's beautiful. And on the other side, it's ironic. And, you know, it's yeah. funny, as, as we're sitting here in the United States, having gone through a seditious time yesterday in our government. And I think about, you know, we don't have the experience that many people have around the world with, you know, bombs and rockets and all those types of things. And I think about how crazy we went over a small thing that happened yesterday. So I, it makes you realize how um, other people in the world live and that there's no way any of us can really fully understand it unless you're there and you talk to the people, you experience it on some level, which which is kind of what you got to do, which was amazing. Yeah, and um, depth of, everyone has a depth, the depth of experience that we can't understand from yeah. our from our safe little spots here in North America, right? Like it's it, it we, not only can we not imagine the rockets outside, but we can't imagine writing poetry in the midst of it or, or, or making coffee in the midst of it. You know what I mean? Like there's absolutely yeah. on and even beautiful things can happen at the same time. Yeah. Okay. 
So the other thing that I loved about the book is that the chapter titles seemed obviously very purposeful as well, because I have to admit when I read, I often don't pay attention to chapter titles. I blow past them and sometimes I go, oh yeah, that's right. It had a title and I'll go back and look at it. But with yours, I was actually anticipating them and looking forward, kind of excited to see them come up because I knew they were going to tell, it was like a snippet of what you wanted to tell in that chapter. So I was curious, was that your idea? Did you were you the one that decided what those chapter titles were and how you were pulling that out of this each chapter? Yeah, that was that, that, that was my idea. It was uh, and that was, you know, not when, when you know writing a book is not always fun, you know, and and uh, uh, you know it can be it's it's it can and usually and should be painful to, to complete a complete a, a book for sure. But I really enjoyed that kind of that those days where I was trying to to find a quote that someone in the chapter had said or had written like that, that, that kind of elevate to the, to the top of the, uh, you know, to the top of the chapter to, to name the chapter up there too. So it was, I, I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you noticed it. I think a lot of people don't notice chapter titles. I I perhaps am one of those people. Um, so, so the, the fact that I, I, the, I thought they were very beautiful too, not because they came from the voices of the people that I was writing about. Yeah, and it's funny. That's why I'm saying normally I wouldn't recognize, I wouldn't even, they, I blow right past them. But in, it was so funny because when I recognized the, you know, the first, even the first chapter, because the first chapter is the homeland is where none of this can happen. And when I found it in the text of, the, of that first chapter, it just kind of hit me and I thought, it, it made me sort of stop and focus a little bit more and really pay attention to what I was reading so that each chapter as it came up, I kind of looked for it and I and I it was kind of like finding like a little you know diamond in the sand where you're kind of going along and then all of a sudden it, it pops up and it has it has more relevance or meaning in that moment so I I love that that was oh, a great I, I, can't, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear that because no one else has mentioned the chapter titles to me before and uh I'm glad you enjoyed them as much as I enjoyed kind of finding those diamonds in the sand to put at the top of them Awesome. Awesome. Now, um, you, I actually, whenever I am going to talk to an author, because I love authors, and I always do a little bit of homework on my own, and I noticed you had done a presentation at Duke University, which we will link to, because I thought you gave a fantastic talk. I thought the discussion was really great, and then the questions at the end were really fascinating. So you had mentioned that you had received some criticism from Palestinian activists because you used words in your book like war, conflict, struggle, instead of genocide, apartheid, massacre. And I was wondering how you respond to that, the criticism from Palestinians, and then kind of on the other side of it, did you also receive criticism from Israelis for maybe being too empathetic or sympathetic? Yeah, you know, it's, that's a great question. You know, before, at, no, as I was writing the book and before it was being published, I, I assumed that I was going to get pushback from from uh, Israelis or you know kind of supporters of the Israeli side of the conflict, right? And I had you know I would I would go for walks and like, in my head rehearsing responses to <laughs> to questions I thought I was going to get. What I didn't, what I, what did surprise me, I think, is because I, I'm I was naive, is that as is is that the other side was going to be angrier. And and for, for some of the reasons you mentioned there too, I, th I think for I think a lot of people, a lot of activists, uh, I would I would read I did a couple of presentations in front of an audience that was mainly uh, kind of an activist community, not all Palestinians, but but kind of Palestinians and and, and pro-Palestinian activists, and I think I felt a lot of them, while they appreciated my um, kind of 
revealing aspects of Palestinian literary culture and portraying uh, Palestine as a beautiful place filled with beautiful people, it wasn't anti-Israeli enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't. It did. I didn't take. You know, I, I wasn't. I wasn't pounding my fists or waving my fists uh, to, to, to to certain people's satisfaction. Now that's. This is a small group. Don't get me wrong. I've had I've had a lot far more Palestinians talk to me and 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 we're grateful for it. Mm-hmm. And so that that makes me happy too. Um, but when you get to the to the wording, yeah, I was I was I was I was uh, uh, criticized for using words, for example, like like war. And I remember someone uh, um, saying, you know, you can't call what happened in Gaza a war, for example. Because a war suggests two equal armies facing off on a battlefield, and that's what it's like. And 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 you know they're right. You know, and, and I don't I don't I don't don't use the word war for that any anymore. I mean, to my defense, a little bit, I suppose that when I was in Gaza, for example, the Gazans when they spoke to me in English, they did use the word war. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I think that. In the context of the book, if you just picked out that three-letter word off the page, you could argue it. But if you look at how I'm describing what happened in Gaza, you know, it's quite clear. I'm not talking about two equal armies lining up on a battlefield. But take the point. You know, I take the point that, you know, war does suggest something that what's happened in Gaza is not. And so, you know, I've conceded that and and I'll I'll change the way I talk about it. Um, One of the words, though, that I that also caused problems the word conflict. And someone said to me too, they said, like, they're like, you know, conflict suggests two equal sides. And my response is, no, it doesn't. That word doesn't mean that. You know, my, my, my 11 year old and I can argue about bedtimes. <laughs> That's conflict and it's not two equal parties. Um, so so I, I, I do, I will push back every now and again on that too. And, and the word conflict, I mean, there's no other word I can think of that encapsulates all the things, right? Encapsulates what happened in '48 and 1967, and 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 uh, and peace accords, and and uh, and all those things together, right? I know everything that that we think of when we think of Israel-Palestine. I can't think of a better word than conflict that encapsulates it all. But some people think that that's too mild. That that's 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 it's it's um it's equating both sides. And I'll say something else on that point too. And this is where I I sometimes get into trouble, or I may get into trouble, is that I think that. If, if it's the role of the activist to uh, um, kind of to educate those who are not educated, to engage those who are not already engaged in the topic, um, I think we are better off telling stories about what life is like for Palestinians right now than we are using language that can, regardless of its accuracy, is is can be can be argued. Definitions can be argued. When we call something, a, if we call what happened in Gaza in, in 2015 uh, uh, a genocide, okay, now the conversation can switch to, well, what is the definition of genocide? Does this, does this, does this, what happened in Gaza fit into that definition? You know, whose definition are we using? You know, it becomes a, it becomes an argument about semantics. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes an, it becomes, you know, a, 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 an academic argument. If that doesn't, it's not going to engage the already, that's not going to engage anyone who isn't already engaged, in my opinion. It's if funny. If tell a story about what happened there, about, about, about a bunch of uh, Palestinian cousins getting killed on the beach while they play soccer, I think yeah. that is a more engaging way to go. Now, 
Okay, it's okay. I just, I, before, I just want to say one thing. I'm not going to tell Palestinians how to describe their life. Like that's the worst thing. I, I would never claim to do that. But if the if the if the intention as activists is to engage, then I think we have to be more strategic on the words that we use. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole discussion about language. I mean, it especially too as we get into you know, especially like in the United States, we have the whole defund the police. Right. Um, terminology yeah. that people are using. And it's funny because I've heard 60s po politicians from the 60s who walked with Dr. King and et cetera saying, you know, when we used, uh, when the Black Panthers used burn, baby, burn, we know what they meant. But the problem is white America heard something different and right. and it didn't serve them well ultimately. And they, and they fight very strongly. Mm -hmm. Now, these older Black men saying, don't use defund the police. So language... Okay matters and and i think it was um really brave of you to attempt to do something in a in an to talk about something that is just so inflammatory on both sides you can't you know it's it's funny because even us like talking about this book right now i was thinking i have some friends that are probably going to be a little angry with me and sure. it's but you just do the best you can and i think the whole point of what you were doing which was to tell a beautiful story about the people of Palestine. You did that so well. And this is why I, I just want people to be open to another perspective, something that, you know, I as an American, unfortunately, have been, you know, way too just sort of reading the headlines and the, and the horror stories. And now here, having another perspective has just been brilliant. So now, one of the things I did, I was telling Shauna before that I wish I could sit down with you and talk about every single person that you mm -hmm. talked about, either oh, inter interviewed or wrote about, because I'm not kidding. We could do like a six hour discussion and I would be thrilled, but I picked out three people. I just thought if you could just give me a little snippet of a story, even if it's something in the book or outside of the book, it would be great. But the three, and I'm not even going to say these were the three that stood out the most. I just picked three. I love them all, but I picked three. So the one I wanted to mention, because I'm a geography major um, in my background, in my ac academic background, and this book, I cannot wait to get this book. But uh, And I'm going to probably, unfortunately, not pronounce the names correctly, But so help me here. But Raja Shahade wrote yeah. Palestinian Walks, Forays into a Vanishing Landscape, and you wrote The Hills of Palestine Then, represent either a lost romantic past or a future investment. The land lacks a present tense. And that just hit me. I mean, that was so, it was like a visual thing. I read that and it just kind of spoke to me. And so I don't know if you could just mention a little something about either him or that book or whatever. Yeah. Raj is a fascinating guy. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a lawyer. He's written, a, it's got to be close to 10 books or maybe even more. He's very prolific, right? English, which is interesting. Um, he's become, become a friend of mine. I've been, you know, I've, I've traveled there a bunch of times and, 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 and Raj and I are, you know, as, as close as I am with any other writers. But yeah, that, 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 that was, I think that was his, uh, his, certainly his most famous book was a Palestinian walks where he just, he's a guy who just likes to hike. Uh, Raja is. And, uh, and you know, when you, when you hike in, in the hills of Palestine and, and it, that landscape changes constantly with as settlements are being built and expanded, as as kind of settler-only highways are, are kind of carved through the landscape. It's this 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 place that he walked through as a child is disappearing, and not just from uh, the Israelis too. Let's 
better. No, Ramallah is the city where, where Raja lives, which is now sprawling and, and, and taking over taking over the, the, the hills that he used to to to, uh, to walk through. There's even um, like wild boars are, 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 are <laughs> running through the valleys of of, of, of Israel and Palestine, like the, the Jordan River Valley, uh, um, and uh, and uh, you know causing problems uh, as well. So so like it's, it's, he's a, he's a very sensitive writer, a beautiful writer, um, who 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 uh, who who really in, loves the land. And uh, and it was it was it was lovely to spend time with him and hear him talk about that about the land and and everyone should read his his books it's just they're, they're good books. Okay, I didn't realize he had that many, so I'm definitely going to look at his his whole canon because I'm really excited because that's I just love this kind of nonfiction. So I'm really excited to read him. Now the next one I wanted to this this sentence that you wrote about Maya Abu Al Hayat. Yeah. Uh, you said. She wishes she knew Israelis well enough to write them as more than nameless faces on a train. And that really struck me. So if you could just talk about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, there's a, my representing, I mean, there, there's, it's, it's, to say the word Palestinian, you know, there's, it, it, it's not enough, right? You have, to, you have to talk about where that, where that particular Palestinian lives, because the, the experience, the life experience of someone who lives in a refugee camp versus someone who lives in Gaza, which is someone who lives as a Palestinian in Israel uh, versus someone who lives in East Jerusalem. Like, no, there's, there's, their life is so different. And Maya is this wonderful woman. Uh, she's an actor as well. She, she, she appears in cell phone commercials and on, on, and, and on the, during the Ramadan soap operas. She's mm-hmm. all she stars in the Ramadan soap operas. She's beautiful. And, you know, she, you know, men and women just kind of stop her on the streets uh, of, of Ramallah. And so she 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 lives in East Jerusalem with her with her husband and their kids, um, but she doesn't like Jeru- she doesn't like East Jerusalem very much. She feels like all the great things about Jerusalem are reserved for the Israelis, and so she travels to she'll she'll, she'll spend hours going through checkpoints just to go into Ramallah and 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 and, and smoke nargila and, and have a coffee in, in a cafe with with kind of her with her Palestinian friends in Ramallah. Um, but she talks about, you know, she writes, she writes beautiful, uh, she writes beautiful poems and, 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 and fiction. And, and yeah, she understands that as her experience as a Palestinian in East Jerusalem, she can't write an accurate Israeli because she doesn't know any, you know, you know, even though, she, you know, she, you know, they live in close, relatively close proximity, right? She doesn't, she doesn't know, she doesn't know how to write and she, in Israel. So, so she won't, and I think that's an interesting thing too. Which mm-hmm. writers should should follow that advice? It's like, don't try to 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 create characters if you don't have the, you know, if, if you can only create a a superficial uh, version of them. You know, like she she she's she's speaking that way not just as a Palestinian living amongst Israelis, but as a sensitive writer. You know, who is ethical in what she puts down on the page? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it really struck me. As I thought, it's it was a bold thing to say, but it was, but it's true to her, and she honors that. So I was just like, gosh, that it's just you don't stop and think about that. I mean, it's one thing if you're going to write fantasy, right? You can create whatever you want, but if you want it to ring true, you have to have had some experience, I think, in order for Mm -hmm. people for it to be believable to people. So. And then the and then the third one I want to talk about because I have to laugh. I looked this and I will say too, I should have mentioned this. When I was reading your book, 
uh, it took took me forever because I'm the kind of person that when I read something in a book, especially nonfiction, and I don't understand some anything, it could be a word, it could be a location. I'm as a geographer, I'm always about like I want to look at where it is on a map, etc. Right. And so I was constantly stopping and looking things up. So I saw that this book is available. I can purchase it. I think it was like seventy eight dollars, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it was a um, Sharif can I, I don't know if it's Kanana. All that yeah. remain, all that remains. I know that it's a it, it is a uh, an app, iNakba app, and I do I did download it and I do look at it and I in fact I showed it to some family members because we were kind of fascinated by it. But I, I'm definitely going to get the book because I think having that in my hands and looking at it and being able to pour over it in paper just seems really profound. And so if you can just yeah. kind of mention what that is. Sure, sure. I mean, this is back in the. I don't have that date in front of me, but you know, it's been 30 years ago. Um, Sharif and and a team of he's a, he's a, a historian researcher, and him and a, him and a team of students decided to document all the villages that were lost after 1948, all the Palestinian villages, and document them. And just you know, I, again, I, I don't have the number in front of me, but there's hundreds. Oh yeah. And and where they were. You know who lived there even things like what, what did they grow in their fields and all these sort of, and then what's and then what's left you know if there's if, if the village is destroyed is there is there the outline of, of a building is there an old mosque is there a cemetery there and so it was, it was an enormous project and it created this this giant book i think 700 some pages um it's just this, it's this monster of a book and it's really something to go through it um uh, to, to just to just to see like what all that's you know it's called all that remains. Uh, mm -hmm. It could be also be called like all that was lost, and so you you, you can't help but you know be 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 torn up by flipping through these pages upon pages of these old villages, some with photographs like old black and white photographs from yeah you know before you know from the forty eight and earlier. Um, sometimes it, sometimes there's even like bits of like accidental poetry when they talk about. The, the kind of trees that are no longer there and, and, and you know, how, how such and such a village used to be known for its strawberries or, you know, or what, what, those, those sorts of things. It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable document. I don't have a copy of it myself, but yeah, it's, it's extremely expensive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, they, yeah, they get the, but the, the, the iNakba app, you know, there, there's, a, there's an app that uses kind of, uh, you know, Google map technology. And, and so it can, it pinpoints all these villages on, on the app. It's not, that's not just though, um, a lot of the information on the INACB app is from All That Remains, but it's, 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 it's another, it's another organization that puts INACB together. So there's, there's other things on there as well. So it's, oh, okay. it's, it's not, it's not the app version of the book. Okay. Yeah. But I have to laugh because like I said, as a geographer, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a map person. I, and whenever yeah. I read something, I have to know, I always have to look it up and get a perspective of, okay, how far is this from this? I like to do directional, like, okay, it's an hour and a half, whatever. I'm not kidding. It took me forever to read your book because I was looking up so much and looking up all the authors, looking up their canon of work and my to be read list just grew exponentially. So thanks oh, a lot good. for that. Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> oh yeah, that, that, I mean, by all means, I mean, I, I've, and that's just what's translated into English, right? I mean, yeah. this this book is not a, you know, a, a reference of, of Palestinian literature, not not even close. This is the kind of, these are the people that I managed to talk to and the books that I managed to read. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some gorgeous writing translated into, into English uh, Palestinian authors. Well, that kind of prompts me to ask, were there other 
Palestinian writers at that time that you wish you'd been able to interview or people since that you think, oh my gosh, I would really love to have interviewed this person for the book? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a, original, had a, my original proposal had a, had a chapter about um, Palestinian authors in the diaspora. And I was gonna go to like New York and, and uh, actually Iceland, there was a guy named Mazen, Mazen Maruf, who was a writer, a Palestinian Icelandic author um, and just to get a sense of what of what uh, what it means to be a, a Palestinian abroad, you know, writing about Palestine from from Brooklyn or, or from yeah. you know, Reykjavik, right? Um, yeah. And I did, didn't do it for a couple of reasons. One was just kind of you know strategically, and and and, and uh, it was, it was, there was a lot more there was a lot of effort involved there too. But I really wanted to focus on Palestinians living in historic Palestine. You know, you know uh, those who still had you know almost like a, still had a kind of physical connection to the land. Yeah. But, you know, Hala Alayan, uh, uh, who wrote Salt Houses, I would have loved to, I, I've since written about her since then, um, uh, uh, Tala Abu Rahme, another Brooklyn-based Palestinian woman writing, in, uh, uh, who's a gorgeous writer. Um, Syed Kashua, I, there was another section I wanted to write about, about um, Palestinian uh, humor writing. Oh. So I, I wanted to talk to Syed Kashua, who now lives, I believe, in the United States, or maybe he went back to... Israel now. He 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 he's, um, used to write for um, Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. Uh, he wrote a, a wonderful, he writes wonderfully satirical novels and very funny essays. Um, so that that was another uh, guy I, I wanted to I wanted to talk to, but but didn't. But I think that like for me, if I can call him this, with, with most respect, like my white whale was Maureen Barghouti, who's I do talk about in the book, but who I was able to meet in person during the time of writing. In fact, at one point, I was ready to make a trip. He lived in he lived in Amman. I think he still lives in Amman. And I was ready to, to travel to Jordan just to spend an hour with with Mr. Barghouti. Mm-hmm. Alas, it didn't it didn't happen. But I got the opportunity to to share a stage with him. Uh, you know, a couple of years later, when the book came out, I interviewed him in Liverpool, at it, wow. and, and it was such an honor and, wow. and such a kind gentleman. And, an incredible writer. Like I saw Ramallah is my favorite. I think my favorite book of nonfiction by a Palestinian. Uh, by, uh, maybe my fir- maybe my favorite book by a Palestinian. Period. Um, but Maureen, I would have I would have loved to have had Maureen interviewed for the book. But I feel very grateful that I had a chance to meet him. Oh, that's awesome! What a what an awesome experience! Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, you wrote a book. Also, again, that this one's on my to be. Re- to be read list, and I'm going to get this one as soon as possible. But you wrote a book in 2012 called, or titled, Walls, Travels Along the Barricades, about people who live alongside physical walls, razor wire fences, etc. Yeah. And I wondered about the psychological effects on the people who live in Gaza who are unable to travel freely, because I honestly did not really understand and realize what was going on in Gaza. And your description of the people who live there and what they face and how they, and they still create art, which is unbelievable, mm-hmm. but, but their everyday life, I thought to myself, it, it doesn't, it seems almost like North Korea in, to some degree, you know, where they really don't have, I feel like they've got this barrier around them and they don't, they can't travel like everybody else. And anyway, if you could just talk about that, um, about yeah. that effect on, on people who live in Gaza. I spend more time in Gaza than any other one place uh, at a time. I, I spent two months there for the, for this book. 
And uh, I think about Gaza every day, and and not just because of, of kind of the, the challenges they face. And now with COVID, is it's a very it's it's a it's a big deal in Gaza, particularly. Um, but because of the, the friends that I met and the, the amazing people that are that are that are that are kind of turning that experience into art and 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 still finding beauty and happiness in spite of it all. But yeah, so you know, I think. I, I think when going in, I knew about Gaza. What I think a lot of people already know that you know the Gazans, uh, it, it's more of a blockade than an occupation. You know, they're they're they're, sur they're surrounded uh, on three sides by by fences, and on the other side by by the the Mediterranean, and and you know just just a, just not far off shore, there's uh, uh, the Israeli navies making sure that you know no fishing boats go too far too far away. Yeah. Um, and so what, 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 I, what I really learned about, about that was about how Gazans, they, they feel that they can't, they can't leave, right? They, they, know, that's, they, they can't leave easily. They need, they need, um, they need permission to get, to get through, you know, out through Israel, which is difficult to obtain. They, you know, the, the border with Egypt is, is, more, is closed almost all the time. There's no, there's no, there's no port. There's no airport. Um, you know, both have been, have been destroyed previous or the airport was. It was. I don't. I don't know if there was a port there in, in the last hundred years. Um, but what was what really broke my heart most about about Gaza was how nothing is for certain. You cannot plan anything. So you go to school, you get a degree, and there's many universities in Gaza. You get a degree. There's no. There's probably no jobs for that degree. Mm -hmm. And if you can't leave, you're stuck there anyway. You know. You don't know. I talked to people who. You know, married couple want to buy an apartment. They don't know if in if next year or the year after there's going to be another you know assault and bombing and 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 uh, an Israeli uh, fighter jet is going to take down that that apartment building, which happens, which you know, which happened over and over again in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't even know if if they turn on if they turn on their electric oven, whether the power will last long enough to cook whatever's inside there. You know, you know, so those, there's, there's this, there's a sense of, this is only, if I, I talk about, you know, the, we talked about earlier about a, a land without a present tense. In, in Gaza, there's only present tense. Yeah. You know, you know, we, there's, there's no way to plan. Um, yeah. And I felt very, most, I felt, I felt badly for, especially the young, um, kind of the, these, 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 Kind of late people in their late teens, and you know some who I wrote about in the book, and and, and in their in, some of their in their twenties who have all this who are creative and they're smart, and they have all this all this potential, and but there's just not a lot to do with that there, and and the idea that the the best thing they can do is leave, and that and 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 that to me like you know it's one thing to be a refugee and to be kind of pushed out of your home, it's another thing to realize that the best thing you can do for yourself is leave home. And I really felt I really felt for for the Gazans that I that I got to know during my time there. So, Marcello, tell us what do you love most about Palestine? Well, there's so much, you know. I've traveled now; it's, I've been there ten times now, and uh, you know, I, I I miss hiking in the in the hills of the West Bank. I miss my time in the cafes on the beach in Gaza. I miss the food and the and the, and the, and the and the coffee, but I tell you, it, I miss the, the the Palestinians are what I miss the most. Um, they truly make that place beautiful. Um, 
I've traveled a lot and a lot through the Middle East and, and, and the people of the Middle East are, 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 are among the most hospitable people in the world, for sure. But the, for, but Palestinians are, are, are even more so in that if you go there and spend time amongst them, they are grateful that you've done that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not mm -hmm. just, it's, it, it, you know, it, it, even if you're there in a casual way, like not as a writer, there, there's a sense that they are happy that someone has come, someone who someone is, is not afraid, and someone has has come and, and seen with their own eyes the kind of you know what life is like uh, on the other side of those walls and fences, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so treated with a, with 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 not just hospitality and generosity, which I'm used to, but a kind of gratitude that I'm not used to, and no, and that I do that I do not I you know I have to tell myself not certainly I cannot take that for granted. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I know because after reading your book, it made me want to go to Palestine so badly. I'm yeah, not kidding. Could. I really, really want to go. We can go. We can go. That sounds good. So now are you working on anything? Because I love your writing, nonfiction, great nonfiction writer. Uh, are you working on anything that we can look forward to soon, hopefully? Yeah, I just submitted the final manuscript for uh, my new book. It's a, it's called Driven, The Secret Lives of Taxi Drivers. And so I, I spent the last couple of years traveling around Canada, meeting um, just meeting cabbies and getting their getting their backstories. And uh, you know, I was you know, far more interested in, in kind of who they are and where they came from and their life stories than I am about kind of the life behind the wheel. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I just got to hear these incredible stories from people who, you know, uh, lost lost a leg in the Sierra Leonean civil war, or, or escaped Czechoslovakia in, in a in a in a piece of junk sedan during you know uh, during the time of the Iron Curtain, or like a Russian fisherman gotten stuck in Newfoundland and now driving, <laughs> or like so many amazing amazing stories have. One man who, who fought two, a, a, an Iraqi guy, an Iraqi ex-wrestler, this big dude, who <laughs> two wars for Saddam Hussein before becoming an artist and traveling to Halifax, where, oh, where, where, where now he became a cabbie there. Like, just these incredible stories. So I, I, it, was, it was kind of like, uh, you know, it was, it was the first of my books where I didn't do overseas travel for. But I realized early on that I don't have to go, I don't have to get on a plane to hear these incredible stories of, of people who've come from far away. You know, like they, they're, 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 we're surrounded by those, we're surrounded by stories. Um, and, you know, and what's going on in, in, the, in the memories of those, of those people who sit in front of us in the cab, who, who we only know by that little square of glass in the, in the rear view mirror, you can only see their eyes, right? You know, the, the, the stories that are, that are there are quite incredible. And so yeah, that comes out in May. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, we, uh, Sean and I would love to have you back because I guarantee you when that book comes out, I'm going to be the first one to own a copy and uh, we'll read it. And we would love to have you back to talk about it because I'm telling you, it sounds fantastic. Exactly. Again, I keep saying this, but the kind of nonfiction that I love, I love to hear people's stories. So, yeah, I mean, in the same way that I couldn't wait to um, tell the stories of these Palestinian authors and, 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 and poets. I really can't wait for people to hear the stories of, you know, Mohammed and, and, and Sergey and all these and all these wonderful, uh, uh, sometimes sometimes moderately crazy uh, <laughs> who I had a chance to hang out with the last little while.
Yeah, awesome. Well, Marcello, we want to just thank you so much for having a chat with us today. And uh, we look forward to um, more work from you in the future and especially the book that's coming next. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was fun. Thanks for listening. If you'd like us to continue to provide great content like this, subscribe and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye.